So um, we're managing to get ourselves one last recording in, uh, which we, we weren't sure we'd do when we were uh, in the room together last week, but here we are. Why? <laughs> what are we? What's the date today? We're about three days away? We're about 72 hours from the Trinity test to be dropped, <laughs> and we'll see what happens. Are you calling your impending baby a nuclear bomb? No, no, no. He's going to be the destroyer of worlds. <laughs> yeah, just, just yours and Sam's. Yeah. <laughs> 72 hours are you going to do like a big um, countdown are you going to get your, your sunscreen on your glasses <laughs> face the other way is, is that a euphemism or like what's going on there <laughs> you're only going to look at your baby through a sheet of black glass or whatever they use when they look at the tree no test. no what will happen is I'll be in the room and it'll all be going on but I'll be on the ground facing the other direction yeah, probably just crying, just weeping for the uh, the terror you've unleashed on the world. Oh, it'll be alright. It'll be okay. So many analogies we can draw between um, the dropping I, of a nuclear bomb and your first I baby. I don't want to paint this idea that like I'm dreading it. I'm actually like really looking forward to this. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's thanks, thanks for the clarification. Like, I don't want to come across as like evil Ken here. Um, but the whole idea is it it has enormous potential and it is going to change our lives and I suppose you can measure it like Oppenheimer there is the before the bomb and then there's the after the bomb (laughs) alright with that uh, welcome to the advanced screening my name is Justin Corbett and joining me as always is soon to be baby daddy Tom Kelly 72 hours ago how you feeling Daddington Island is imminent no great really good uh, life it feels like we are in a mini lockdown so to speak Um, we're cast back to 18 months or so ago because we're not really going out we're not really doing anything and we're just watching a lot of daytime movies yeah I can just uh, whatever's whatever's on TV or like just scrolling scrolling the carousels and being like shit let's let's do this today scrolling and then like I might go do something for half an hour and I'll come back and Sam has just put something on and it's almost like I guess we're watching this for the next two hours so I'm going to run you through what we've watched so we've watched Devil's Wear Devil Wears Prada which an interesting film like 15 years later um, yeah, not not as big of a hit as it was when it came out. Well, I, I liked it because it's got um, what's his name from? Uh, why do I do this? I start saying something and then I have a fucking mini stroke <laughs> and I sound like you a got, fucking got a dumb idiot. Uh, Adrian Grenier from Vinny Chase from Honorage. I can't believe you. This is this is how much we know each other. You said what's his name from What's That Thing, and I was like, oh, Adrian Grenier. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Well, I think this is the thing. When we are out having this conversation, you can finish my sentence, and you get. I know, I know where it. you're going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was great that he's in it, but also then that that also feels like a Vinnie Chase part where he's playing off Anne Hathaway. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he shouldn't ever be a leading man. He should be, like, secondary. He's a third heat. Um, yep. So, Devil Wears Prada, uh, Jackie Brown, we watched on Friday night. That was really good. Ooh, never seen it. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I'm going to bring this up later, this talking action movie sort of idea. And it doesn't have practically any action in it at all for a Tarantino movie. It's quite a lot of restraint. So, And that will feed into Oppenheimer and other stuff. Uh, then we've watched Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which I know you oh, really liked. 
I loved it. We talked about this a few pods ago, but I loved it. Did you I, like it? I really enjoyed it. It was really good. Yeah, good, good. And then parts of Jerry Maguire, which I was almost like, uh, whatever about. Um, and then parts of Dead Poet Society, which I walked in on and was just almost like, oh, this is on. And this then on. Uh, two Women's World Cup knockout games. It's funny. I, I don't know what mood we were in last week because we're not currently waiting for a kid, but we did like the same thing. Every night we got home and we're like, let's watch another 90s action film. Let's watch another 90s action film. We watched A Few Good Men. We watched Crimson Tide. We watched Clear and Present Danger. It's like, yeah, cool. Love this. You need to get like the, the Alec Baldwin submarine movie get into you. Uh, Hunt for Red October. Yeah, let's do that. I can't believe we didn't put Crimson Tire. I mean, maybe because neither of us neither of us had seen it. We didn't put it on our submarine thrillers because that is a good movie. Yeah, that's uh, Denzel Washington and Gene, Gene Hackman. Hackman. Yeah, oh, great movie. Mutiny on a sub when you can't go anywhere else and it's two sides fighting against each other on the same sub. Sign me up. So, <laughs> so Oppenheimer, let's start. <laughs> oh, you want to do so? Uh, we might get to. TV talk a little later. Uh, we really want to talk about the bear and hijack, depending on uh, oh, in class of 09, depending on time we got. But uh, let's do Barbenheimer again because we're going to do spoilers this time. Last week we didn't spoil the movies, but we've both seen both films now. Uh, so Barbie and Oppenheimer completely spoiled. Uh, which one do you want to start with, Oppie? I saw Oppie yesterday. Uh, well, I think that's a good place to start. So we'll come in a bit more fresh on, for you. And then my opening question is. What is more deadly, Casey Affleck or the Trinity Test? Casey Affleck. Bash! Casey Affleck. Casey Affleck with a really mean haircut in this movie. I, I I couldn't believe. I didn't know he was in it, and I was this this character of this like intelligence officer comes up like an hour and a half into a three hour movie, and they don't show his face for four or five frames of the show of the movie. And you just hear his voice. I'm like, I know that voice. And then yes. the camera pans around and it's Casey Affleck. I'm like, oh my God. Speaking what is Casey Affleck doing here? Slow, demonic drawl. It was great. Uh, it, 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 was, um, oh, it, it is a film packed full of weird cameos. So many weird cameos. The other one that I wanted to bring up was um, Rami Malek, who plays Rami Malek, who is an Oscar-winning actor. <laughs> Has this part where he says no lines three in, scenes? in three scenes. I'm like, why is Rami Malek in this movie? Did he need to like renovate his pool house or something? Like, what's he doing? And then it, he gets that big scene at the end. I'm like, oh, this is why they cast Rami Malek. Okay, I get it now. As soon as he turned up on screen in that character, which was such, when he appeared, it was such like a B or C character. It's almost like that guy is going to be so fucking important because it's Rami Malek. <laughs> it's Rami Malek. Rami Malek. Up until the final scene of the movie that he has, he is like second in command of an actor I've never seen in my life, like carrying his books for him. Like, what is, what is Rami Malek doing? But then it pays off at the end when he really goes to town on uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Strauss character. See, I my favourite one was like, get that crap baby out of here. <laughs> Gary Oldman playing the, the US... <laughs> Playing how what Harry Truman? That was so fucking great. I, I, I um, completely forgot Gary Oldman was in it until he just said it because he's playing the president for two minutes and then he's gone again. This is just Christopher Nolan in his bag, just calling up yeah. anyone he wants to be in this movie. And I think people wanted to be in that movie. Um, I think that once 
I think if you're listening to this, you've already got a gist of the film. So your general thoughts on coming out? Well, before while we're still talking about characters, uh, you just said Matt Damon, who I think is amazing in this movie. He, he he's the was, third hate, isn't he? Yeah, he uh, said he was taking like a couple of years off acting and he said to his wife, he's done all these interviews and he said to his wife, the only reason I won't, I promise I'm going to have a break, but if Christopher Nolan calls, then I'll go. And Christopher Nolan called and he's in it. Um, what I found about the movie kind of to keep it tied to the actor conversation is that it was so, so good and like it didn't feel like three hours. Um, I really, really like thought Christopher Nolan... I, we talked about it last week when I hadn't seen it and I was like, Christopher Nolan is all about these kind of mindfuck films like um, time and space and memory and dreams and all this kind of stuff. How does he go doing a movie that's just like grounded in reality because I had watched Insomnia the week before and didn't think it was that good and he's obviously a really, really good filmmaker. Maybe, yeah. Like, he's a really good filmmaker. This movie had no action in it at all like it's set during the war and it has no action whatsoever it's a talking action moments, movie going back to that point going I was making you, yeah. Oh, yeah. there were moments where I'm like like obviously you are in the in the Trinity test scene and stuff like that but just so many scenes where I'm just like gripping the seat thinking like like hair on the back of the head kind of stuff and it's just people talking or people like putting a hexagon onto the other hexagon as part of the bomb that they're making for the test. And you're like, oh shit, this is so tense. Yeah, the dialogue has that rat-a-tat-tat to it, almost like yes. Sorkin-esque, where it is rapid fire. It leaves the audience behind in parts. and It does. It really does. And I and I, I was a bit worried. Like uh, Christopher Nolan doesn't seem to sound mix his movies too well. There was like a lot of score. Like there was a score just continuously through the whole yep. movie. Even in like quiet character moments, there was like a drumming score behind it that made it a little difficult to catch a the dialogue. Things, but not yeah. like Tenet. Not like Tenet. You just can't hear Tenet. But and I, you need to know what's going on in Tenet, whereas you can kind of guess what's going on in Oppenheimer. But I think that's the important point about this, where people walked out of Tenet and was almost like, what the fuck was that about? Memes about like I couldn't hear anything was Bane in this movie yada yada yada, <laughs> but the whole idea is with Tenet it didn't fucking matter because I, I sort of feel and this is sort of picking up on a point of from a podcast that we've probably both listened to that Tenet is one half of the whole where these are the this is the two movies sort of coming together the the double feature of the talking action movie and then the all it is is action and the whole idea with Tenet that it almost comes across as a as a tech um, demo where look at all the things I can do with a camera. Look at all the action sequences that I can orchestrate. If that's the running up the walls, if that is the cars driving backwards, if that is the the temporal pincer movement and stuff like that. Yeah. Look at all, look at everything I can do. These are all my moves. And then he then pivots as I well look at all the moves I have here, too. And he and he wrote this which. It just said, like, usually he... Based off the like, book, it, right? American yes. Prometheus, yeah. Great but he kind title. of, like... Great title. He he usually writes, like, with his brother, Jonathan Nolan, or Jonathan Nolan's wife, Lisa Joy. Like, he usually has a co-writer on stuff. And he's often been criticized for kind of having very stilted dialogue or um, can't write not really women. writing... Can't write for women. But I feel like... I thought Emily Blunt was great in this movie. Um, it's still probably underwritten. And Still what's going unwritten. on with Florence Pugh? 
yeah, the the women are just there to serve different moments of Oppenheimer's life. But I thought like better than past movies. Um, so it was interesting that it was just entirely written by him and written, like you said, in this kind of Sorkin-esque way where it's just like snappy, talk, 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 score in the background, talk, talk. You're like, what the fuck's going on? And the tension is kind of from trying to stay, trying to keep up with the characters, but not in a bad way, like in a good way. I felt that That's was... That's where the tension comes from. That was most pronounced when they had the whole getting the team together where they're crisscrossing the country, talking to scientists, and Matt Damon is sort of saying, this is the most important thing ever. And that sort of back and forth, that ping pong sort of dialogue, jumping from scene to scene as well, like it moved so quick at times. But I suppose the whole idea is it was a biopic that's going to cover roughly 40 years, sort of from his time in Oxford from the 1920s all the way up through 50s and then a touching on the 60s as well when he died in, I think, 67 from my wikipedia deep dive that i had after the film <laughs> um speaking of him what did you think of killian murphy oh it's best actor right yeah i like i don't there might be something that comes out later on in the year but like he's like a what a dollar 60 favorite like it's yeah he was phenomenal it's a one horse race surely yeah i um like there's so many so many facets to him in this movie. Like there's certain points where he just seems like this really cold calculating scientist. And you kind of think like, this is the bad guy. And then there's other points where he's like really opened up to other scientists, like when they're at um, Los Alamos and stuff. And like, he's really happy and excited. And then like the kind of mournful, regretful guy after the bombs dropped and they're going through the whole legal process of trying to revoke his security clearance. He's like another character again. Um, He's so good in this movie. I thought those those hearing testimony sort of scenes were interesting with how he navigated that. There was it was a different sort of character portrayal to earlier in the film. Yeah. Um, how did you find that jumping back and forth with timelines between uh, them working with uh, what's the Robert Downey Jr. character called again? Uh, Admiral Admiral Strauss. Strauss. Then. Yep. Strauss post war. Then you've got the hearing, and then everything leading up to the Trinity test as well. Yeah. I thought um, initially when we had uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s black and white straw scenes, um, I was a bit like, why are we doing this? It didn't kind of really feed in too much to the main narrative. And I was kind of a bit like thinking they were a bit waste of time, even though Robert Downey Jr. like could almost be a lock for supporting actor as well. He's so good in this movie. I feel like um, he crackles on scene and Marvel oh. have fucking stolen him for 20 years. They've absolutely wasted him for 20 years. I mean, wasted in the sense that he made them a multi-billion dollar movie franchise, but off he's back entirely. And so the they franchise used him is, well. And the franchise is now creaking without him. <laughs> without him. And you can see why, because he was like playing Iron Man. He's playing like a superhero, so what sort of thing. But then you take him out of it and Marvel crashes and you see him anywhere else. And he's so, so good. Um, I thought that was kind of a bit of a waste of time until the timeline's lined up yeah and once we had um like we understood why we were doing that like it it kind of i didn't know the history and i'm sure some people might but i didn't know the story behind oppenheimer kind of losing his security clearance because he was now that he had created the bomb he was kind of pushing back against further nuclear armament and stuff like that and so they wanted him to just get out of the limelight i didn't know any of that and so none of that made sense until that was made clear in like the third act of the movie do you think 
I, I found that as well where there was long periods of the film where I wasn't sure what's the relevance of this but it all had to pay off in that last hour and it paid off to varying degrees like did it land the plane or not I think that needs to be sort of deliberated on more viewings I don't think I'm going off one viewing from two weeks ago so I, and I'm still not lock sold on it where I still really like the last hour but I'm still sort of umming and ahhing about some bits and there was there was sequences of the film where this felt like as I said it moved quick but there was still sequences that lacked intensity and it was more like what is going on here what's the relevance of this and then it paid off two and a half hours later and so I was like okay cool I get that and I think that's I, um, where the criticism sort of comes from. I completely get now um, what you were saying last week and then what was kind of in the limited reviews that I kind of glanced at but tried not to read about the controversial third hour um, and kind of we get the Trinity test, they drop the bomb and you're like, shit, there's still an hour to go in this movie. What's this all about? But I really, really liked it because I didn't know the story. Maybe yeah. people might be, maybe that, in America they like it less because they knew the story and they're like, we know this, who cares? But knowing that... I don't think many people know it. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if they don't, then it's fascinating. It yeah. is. I think it is incredible that the guy who made this bomb and changed the world and um, we can talk about the final scene a bit later, but that he was then against kind of creating this world of nuclear weapons all over the place... Um, and they essentially fucked him for it and said like we and smeared his name to get him out of the limelight so they could keep making their bombs i thought that absolutely paid off and that third hour was really good yeah i'm pleased I that wanted you, to... you you'd like the third hour i liked yeah, that a lot i did yeah. i i i could have like i know i know i went and saw it with brit and i know she was getting a bit squeamish i know some other people get squeamish but i could have kept watching it like yeah i thought it was yeah really really interesting it's it's one thing to have like the incredible visuals of the Trinity test and the making of the bomb and the recruiting the scientists, but like the, the kind of political back and forth and stuff. And like the revelation with Robert Downey Jr. In that scene with, um, Alden Ehrenreich, uh, oh. who's also doing so well. Young Han Solo was back. Young Han, young Han on the Solo. Who, trail. Yes. He was a good actor in a bad movie and now he's a good actor in a good movie. And you can tell, um, that scene with the two of them, when the when the mask cracks on Downey Jr.'s character, and you realise that for all the niceties he's been going on about for most of the movie, he actually wanted to fuck over Oppenheimer because he made a joke about him two decades earlier. Yeah, like so good. I and that's that was like Downey Jr.'s showreel there when Doesn't he's like that, actually angry. I thought that was something interesting that is no one making some sort of commentary about man or how we act as humans where both of those key characters went after their nemesis after they had been publicly shamed. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting. I thought it was really, really good. Um, while we're still talking about characters and like the length of the movie, I think what I found was that Nolan deployed the introduction of characters at like the perfect time. So like, I, and what I mean by that is Killian Murphy, we just said, obviously is amazing and carries this whole movie, but three hours of just Killian Murphy, you'd probably start to get a bit sick of it. And I felt like the moment Matt Damon's charming, funny general comes in, it just picks up and it suddenly feels urgent again um, after an hour of not having him. And then it starts to slow down a bit and then you get, 
Casey Affleck for one scene playing this like smarmy fucking intelligence officer and the back and, and forth picks, on the train and back and forth on the train and it just picks up again like um, Emily Blunt comes in sadly a little underwritten but like their dynamic um, once Robert Downey Jr. has the heel turn even though he's in the whole movie he has the heel turn and you realise he's trying to fuck over Oppenheimer and not help him that's an, almost a reintroduction of a new character and it picks up again like all these moments throughout that a new character comes in and just really, really changes the dynamic. Jason Clark. Jason Clark. Oh my god, I can't believe I forgot. J- Australia's Jason Clark. He really steps it up in the last scene. Um, there's a one or two other things I wanted to talk about. Oh, Josh Hartnett is having. He had had a bit of a renaissance within that. Um, oh. But I Florence Pugh sex scene. Let's go. What thoughts? Um, Was it? Did it pull you out of the movie? A little bit because uh, I, I saw a really good post today that was something along the lines of um, uh, Christopher Nolan being able to write the script of a 1940s set political slash quantum energy thriller and write the line where fucking um, within that script in the 1940s is just kind of like a big middle finger to any kind of screenwriting class that's ever been given, <laughs> like the, the context of it and like that happening and it was could have completely this is what we were just talking about could have completely been dropped didn't need to her character entire character you're like why did we see any of this it doesn't make any sense could have been a two and a half hour movie but then that becomes the main turning point of like you were seeing a known communist so we should therefore have reason to not trust you with our secrets yeah so that's why it was there um but didn't really need to be there did you and are you aware of like the the infamous quote about like oh, I am the, the 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 bringer of death, the god of death? Is that like where it came from? So that, that yeah, well, the whole idea. Of, well, I don't know about that. While, but there's while a creative license. Pugh is sitting astride him. Um, what did you think of the tribunal scene where they sort of Nolan sort of using some creative license here? about like what's going on in the minds, but then showing that on screen. It's probably not what he's most well known for. For which part? Where like Florence Pugh was straddling him during the tribunal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, look. Uh, <laughs> her, her staring... People were Emily... laughing in the cinema when oh, that were happened. They? Yeah. Uh, yeah, look, um, we, we I didn't realize any laughter in the cinema but i was kind of a bit like this is uncomfortable <laughs> i i i kind of i like the initial pan around and killian murphy's suddenly naked yeah. on the chair because it's like he feels naked like getting stripped apart like this yeah um i don't think he needed to then put florence Pugh on his lap and have her stare down emily blunt really really weirdly um but i mean you know it's christopher nolan trying to write women what do you <laughs> <laughs> you got to take the good with the bad you know the bad um, with the good. I wanted to pull out a couple of movies, some that you may have seen, some that you haven't, to sort of draw parallels on. I don't know. It's probably not what Nolan had, was deliberately touching upon, but the first thing I thought about, especially those black and white scenes, was um, Good Night and Good Luck, which was George Clooney, sort of 2005 um, film, all shot in black and white, where I think they worked for CBS, and it was about... Mer- McCarthyism. Um, Robert Downey Jr. is also in that film, and this portrayal 
portrayal of these journalists and the execution of these um, communist witch hunts in America. And that sort of aesthetic and tone, I, I drew straight away out of that. And then the other one was... Um, there will be blood and Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. looking at these ideas of American titans of industry and there will be blood is a fictional work, but it feels apt here that this, it feel it felt like a PTA film in some ways because of the, the grandeur of the characters that it was trying to approach. Did you see it, um, extreme screen or VMAX or whatever, or just normal? The biggest one at, uh, EQ. Yeah. So, um, VMAX because do we have an IMAX? Is there an IMAX? So we we don't Dubai? they they reopen in IMAX in Sydney. Yeah. But the biggest screens are the ones that you saw, and I saw it on the same one, which is extreme screen in at Hoyts. Um, which don't at, feel that big. No, they're. I mean, yeah, they're not. They're not that big, but um, they're not IMAX. We can't go see IMAX seventy millimeter anywhere. But on those screens, like you're talking about like a PTA film and Titan of American industry, like how much you just like only have Killian Murphy's head in frame. Such a tight. Oh, so tight. And particularly like the, the last scene, which we can talk about now, which I remember we were sitting there and that last scene happens and it's just his face taking up the entire box, telling Albert Einstein, like, Oh, we may have ended the world. And he has a vision of like nuclear rockets going off and, the world just getting encased in fire and then the credits roll and the cinema was dead silent. Like the lights come up. This was a sold out screening. So these things have like 150 seats and everyone was just like, yep. Bit of a bummer, man. <laughs> Bit of a bummer. And you kind of like, it was, it was as if people were hanging around for like a, a Marvel, Marvel post credit scene <laughs> because Brit, Brit and I sat there for like, a couple of minutes just being like, oh, that was that was heavy. Fuck you. Yeah, the world is like every day is one angry person's button push away from just exploding. And so we sat there for a couple of minutes. Maybe five minutes later, we got up and still half the cinema was just sitting there staring at credits on a screen, just like contemplating life. It's, it's like a oh. real fuck you. Yeah. And I suppose this is the... Is Nolan successful in persuading the audience that Oppenheimer is the most important person who's ever lived. Because I think that's the mission statement. You think, of the yeah, film. I was going to ask you. Is that, what you. is that what you think? I think it, I don't think it convinces, but it asks the question and it gets me there, but I don't think it's... I'm not sure. You raise, a, you raise an interesting point for someone who could make pretty much... He could get a check to write any movie he wants to make. Everyone so far has been some kind of fantastical element to it. And he takes the check and makes a movie about a real life person for the first time ever, he must think this is like the most important person yeah. in history. And I think why, it, why else would he take his power and do that? Well, he's, he's interested in that time period as well. Cause he's made Dunkirk as well. That those two films go together mm. in different ways where like um, Dunkirk in some ways ha- has hardly any dialogue in it in sections. Where that's like, a, that's a non-dialogue movie. I yeah. couldn't, you can't name a single character in Dunkirk. And I don't even know if they get names half Harry the time. Harry Styles. <laughs> yeah. Actor. <laughs> um, also, is Kenneth Branagh the new Michael Caine? Yes. In the sense... That, could have, that, that should have been... A, that could have or should have been a Michael Caine. I can't believe Michael Caine was in this movie. But that Kenneth Branagh now just is the new Michael Caine. He turns up in every Christopher Nolan film. I was Big just scrolling down like the, the Google thing for this movie. Like 
Jack Quaid's pretty big now. Matt Damon, he brought back Josh Peck. Um, uh, Josh Hartnett's back. What a renaissance. Gary Oldman, Casey Affleck. Dane DeHaan. What happened to Dane DeHaan for a few years? Dane DeHaan's back. Um, Benny Safdie playing the guy with the sunscreen and the I glasses. He was fantastic in it. Teller, he was really good. Got Kenneth Branagh, Jason Clarke. Um, Alex Wolf. Do you know who Alex Wolf is no. if I say that name? Alex Wolf is the boy from Hereditary. Haven't seen it. Oh, yeah, you wouldn't like Hereditary. He's like massive up and comer, and he has like two lines in this movie. Um, God, who else? Uh, Matthew Modine, like Tony Goldwyn, who was like the lead on Scandal for seven years and one of the hottest men in the world. And he plays Jason Clark's offsider in that um, briefing oh, okay. room. He's like the, mid, the, the main guy running it. Like, insane what he can do. Um, what is more insane before we shift to Barbie is just the. Um, I was telling you this when I was trying to get tickets that we are now weekend three of these two movies. Sell out, and, baby. And they are sold out at 2 p.m. on a Saturday. Like we had to get the last the last two seats together in an extreme screen cinema at the back in the corner. Everything else for the entire day was single seats all over. For a three-hour biopic rated they f- R. They are feeding off each other. They they are symbiotic life forms now. This is... It's insane. And Barbie... Like, we weren't going to go see Barbie, but Barbie was the exact same. It had, like, the selling fast things next to it. Um, uh, Margot Robbie sold it to Mattel saying, like, this is going to be a billion-dollar movie. Came out with interviews after that meeting and was like, oh, I think I oversold it, and it's made a billion dollars this weekend. All right. Week three. Yeah, week three. It's going um, to be, it, it could, depending how long they keep it in cinemas, it could be the highest grossing film of all time. I wanted to make a bridge. Are these films both in response to Trump in some way? <laughs> um, you're making a very flimsy bridge. No, uh, but, but, but it, not, in, not directly to Trump, but the, the atmosphere and discord that we are now living through. Yeah, probably. I think I think maybe so Nolan like, saw. Let me, let me try to build this bridge, so to speak. So I think <laughs> no, that this is all yours. Oppenheimer is looking at this idea, and especially in that last hour of anti-expert, anti-science rhetoric. This red-blooded sort of un, you're un-American, and then yep. Barbie is obviously sort of. In sections, it pivots towards sort of like refuting these ideas of like proud boys patriarchy bullshit that is Mas- enforced masculinity. On, yeah, and and that is enforced um on, on the entire population, both yeah. men and women. Um the the third act of Oppenheimer, which you just brought up, is yeah com- completely right in the sense that like. No, will I? I do my own research, and so your twenty years of experience in the field are wrong because I googled something is like pervasive today, and that's essentially what was happening in Oppenheimer fifty years ago. Fauci, <laughs> like, just yeah, hang hang Fauci. Is is that like? <laughs> did he did he kill us all with the vaccines, or did he save lives? I don't know. I mean, you could trust Fauci's fifty years of experience, or you could Google. Uh, do vaccines cause autism? I mean, it's up to you. Yeah, both both sides, <laughs> both sides. Um, and then and then Barbie, you're building a good bridge. Um, do do you see that? It's, it's not obvious, but it's not directly a response to 
Trump as a figure, but Trump as in the the four year period that we lived through. How we're living now. Yes. The, um, the biggest thing in that argument in Barbie is um, uh, I can't remember who posted it, but someone was like, "If if right wing men watch Barbie, Proud Boys and whatnot, and get like angry about the jokes they make about Ken in a comedy movie." and man and masculinity then like what kind of masculinity do you have in the first place yeah um it's a it's a comedy film take the piss out of yourself take the like if you have ever over explained the godfather to a girl <laughs> laugh because they just called you out on it and it's great it's very funny <laughs> i've done that yeah i know you have i haven't seen the godfather so uh, sam I'm, watched I'm new the, masculinity sam watched the godfather when we flew sydney to heathrow and I just conked out on the flight and she watched the whole thing and she's like, it was pretty good. Yeah, but, and but then you I woke took, up and explained it. But I talked it up way too much beforehand. <laughs> such a wanker. Um, so let's let's pivot to Barbie, Barbie. then. Um, what uh, d- did you note down how many times or at what point they uh, brought up fascists? Because you talked about it before you'd even seen the movie. Well, I, I, I didn't realize that Barbie was going to be the fascist. Barbie was a bit of a fascist in Barbie Land. In, I can't remember. Well, the, sorry. That the the daughter in the real world, I can't remember. Was it Sasha or Mila or I can't remember her name. Yeah, yeah, Sasha. America Ferreira's kid. Yes, and she called Barbie a fascist because, and then sort of thinking about where Barbie has sat in our culture for the past 50 years and yeah it's sort of it's pivoted and like we're gonna have like different sort of shades of barbie and barbie in different forms both bodily physically and occupation uh but i liked how it sort of made fun of that so it's like yes we've done all these things but really think about all the harm that we've done about setting these ideas about stereotypes about women and the female form and stuff like that but I did like the 2001 Space Odyssey sequence saying... At the start. The breaking of the roles where it's almost like we can see women at that time could then... Or ch- well, girls, pretty much, could then imagine... This you don't idea. just have to be a mum. Yeah. You're, you're not just a homemaker. You can you can be whatever. But that, but within that... Within the box... Of whatever it's interesting. It is. Oh, it's, oh, it's good that you said within the box at the end because one of the biggest things to talk about this movie now that we've both seen it is how much of it is like anti-corp, like really meta commentary about the state of toys and women and stuff like that and how much of it is a toy commercial for Mattel because part of it is like Mattel headquarters with Will Farrell and the men running... a. Um, this company and stuff is like really poking fun at them and saying this is fucked up but then another part is like how great was Barbie when it came out because it taught women that they can be anything they want and they don't just have to be mothers of baby dolls so it's kind of like having its cake and eating it too yeah it's a bit of retconning in there yeah yeah and I don't mind that the ghost of Mattel's creator or whoever it was like yeah this is why I created Barbie it's like is it yeah but uh in context for the time period, they are responding to this anti against this homemaker sort of rhetoric or idea, but it's still such a narrow sort of idea considering where where we are now. And I did like how it broke that 
that fourth wall where it's almost, no, Barbie has not saved the world. Barbie has done enormous harm. And these ideas of what body image and stereotypical sort of what femininity means as well. Um, again, two straight white dudes talking about <laughs> what it means for a female experience. Again, we are aware of that, our hypocrisy here. Should should I like go grab Brit and get her to like ten minutes at the end of the podcast? Get her in and get her to talk about it. If you or do you want to sort of do you want it that as like a bonus half an hour? No, I'll, I'll ask her. We'll do we'll do a break and then I'll get her to come in right at the end. Sure. Um, so yeah, the and how how about the like uh, the meta-ness of it? Like, there's been complaints, fucking quotation marks, complaints of like parents taking their kids to see a Barbie movie and the kids being confused and crying and not really know what's going on. And this goes back to like the, um, the fascist line that came up earlier where the real life girl calls Barbie a fascist and Barbie's like, I, I don't know why she called me a fascist. I don't control the railways or the means of commerce. I love <laughs> like, that. Like that's really, and then, that's a good joke. And then the, um, I think every, we saw this opening night in a like completely full cinema with some friends and when the movie just completely pauses to advertise Depression Barbie, <laughs> the fucking cinema was howling. Like, I have not been in a movie experience like this since Avengers Endgame four years ago. Like, everyone was losing it at Depression Barbie. I sat next to a really big and burly bloke who'd lost it the entire film. <laughs> like, loved it? Yeah, loved absolutely it. loved yeah, it. Yeah, great. It's so good. Like, some of those jokes... Um, when the narrator comes in to say like um, Barbie's having an existential crisis about not being pretty enough, and um, so Meryl Streep's voice comes, Meryl Streep's voice comes over and says, um, "Casting Margot Helen Robbie Mirren. to Helen Mirren, casting Margot Robbie to portray this point was not the right idea." Yeah, I, I like that a lot. The, oh, we were watching The Devil's Wears Prada this afternoon, and there was a bit where Anne Hathaway, like, so. Uh, Meryl Streep then says like how Anne Hathaway is unattractive and bland and it's almost like I'm looking at it it's almost like Anne Hathaway is just like an American goddess sort of thing going on (laughs) on screen and it's almost like are you for fucking real what's going on here how unrelatable is this film or is or or is that the deliberate I don't know but it made me so Barbie obviously yeah, yeah Barbie obviously knew what they were doing um the, the use of the narrator over the course of the thing was so great. Um, my next question was, I, I teased it. I couldn't say much about it, but is Michael Sarah back? Fucking A, yeah. I hope so. Um, he's going to do... He's back with a voiceover for Scott Pilgrim vs. the World in the manga series. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, in the anime. <laughs> they, they bring yep. him back as an anime, which I fucking love, and that was a great film. Um, I just hope he's working and, and, yeah. and enjoying himself. While he's working. He's so, he's so good as Alan. He is so, so good. All of Ken's clothes fit him. So I think I'll never gotta, stop saying that line. I think we've got to talk about Margot and Ryan. Yeah. Um, uh, she's both fantastic. nominated. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think Gosling needs to be nominated. You don't? I, th- I, really, I, I think out of I, respect to comedy films, nominate Ryan Gosling. I really enjoyed it. I don't think it needs a nomination, though. I think if we're talking Oscars... He can have a nomination, but as it stands, Robert Downey Jr. would wipe the floor with him I if we're talking it, supporting actors. Ryan Gosling, in his PR and marketing interviews, give him a no- nomination. He doesn't need <laughs> it for the film. Um, Margot's fantastic in this. Absolutely carries it. She, she yeah. kills it. And the, that she carries the weight of it 
from the both ends, from the heavy and the light. And what I really liked about this film is there is a sense of physicality about all the action. So even like for what's going on with the ankles and legs and that joke, but also yep. all the, the dance routines and then what Ken is doing and what Ryan goes They all had like movement coaches and stuff. Yeah, it's, it, it's such a physical film in what they are doing in all the shots. It, it was such a... To to answer that point, like it was such a nothing moment, but I just distinctly remember laughing so hard at one of the points where Margot Robbie is getting really upset and she's like lying on the ground. And she falls like over. over. Yeah. And she falls over like she's a stiff Barbie doll and she kind of like, it's almost like she's planking on the ground because she can't really move properly. And it was just so funny. Like just this is physical comedy in a moment, particularly for Barbie like where she's like genuinely upset and crying and like dealing with really existential shit. And she just does this like little physical comedy, like role thing. It was great. Kate McKinnon. Kate McKinnon. Great. So good. at <laughs> And again, bringing that physical presence to the role. Perpetually doing the splits, Barbie. All those references were great. Like this, I'm, I'm the Barbie that all the, all the kids tear apart and cut their hair and paint their face and stuff. This is the thing is it's the creative writing within it. It's the it's the jokes. It's the storytelling. Um, Greta Gerwig, she's got an open open check now to do whatever she wants post this. And do you know what she wants to do? No. What? So Greta Gerwig uh, is doing a Chronicles of Narnia film for That's Netflix. Right. So that is literally whatever she wants to do. Dude. And this is what she wants to do. Isn't and isn't that interesting that she's still picking up on ex- pre existing IP to do it. Yeah, but like, given what she just did with Barbie, like, I don't know where you take a Chronicles of Narnia film, but go for it. Do whatever you want. Do whatever. After yeah. what you just did, so, and it's also something that hasn't been necessarily nailed. Um, I don't think you'll get them back for a two. I don't think you'll get Margot and Greta back together. I, I, well, you mean like a Barbie two? I, well, like a sequel. They will be begging for it because it's been so successful from a financial step standpoint and also a critical standpoint as well. No, nah, no, nah, they they've got Polly Pocket, mate. We talked about this last week. But I don't think <laughs> with that's, uh, Lily Collins. I don't think that's got the golden dust of what this has. Like, I I really like Lena Dunham and what what she could do as a filmmaker and as an actress. Uh, but I think having Gosling, Robbie, and Gerwig that that is your Trinity test, so to speak. And it Mattel, doesn't work without them. Mattel maybe won't go back because they currently are doing. A Barney movie, a Polly Pocket movie, a Bob the Builder movie, an Uno movie, a Hot Wheels movie, Magic 8-Ball movie, Thomas the Tank Engine, American Girl Dolls, Bass Fishing, He-Man, Matchbox Cars. See, like This I is all on their development slate right Matchbox now. Matchbox 20 as well, if we've if we, we got to bring up that in the second. <laughs> uh, I thought that was such a great reference point where it's almost like, think about a Dude Bro song from like the mid-2000s, Matchbox right. 20. People picking up a guitar and just staring in their eyes. You're guilty of that. <laughs> I have never done that in my life. You, no, I, you I were the guy in high school who, who, could play, who could play bass guitar and you ripped that <laughs> yeah. a lot. Yeah, that was like for performances. But I don't think any of those other properties hold the same intellectual weight. I don't think it has the, the broad mainstream appeal to both male and female audiences. I, I, it does nothing. Yeah. Those. No, it's, and, and like something about Greta Gerwig, Margot Robbie, like I know Lena Dunham and Lily Collins and stuff, but like Ryan Gosling, 
the marketing budget, like $150 million marketing on a $140 million movie. Um, I just don't know if you can ever bring it all back together, but it is the Oppenheimer meme. It's like, what has Mattel unleashed on the world by yeah. making a movie this good that's going to make like $1.5 billion? I wanted to ask, um, because I've only got a couple of minutes left before I've, I have to go. Um, of course you do. But what did you think of the differences between in Barbie land and then shooting outside in the real world in, in LA. Um, yep. I did like the tenant joke because th- this is a film that was so packed full of film references like 2001. Right, was- we could go for another hour and a half just like doing jokes like the Zach's, the Snyder Cut joke. Like that was great. The tenant joke was great. Oh, you um, picked up on the tenant joke as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's so good. Um, in, ter- in terms of your question... I a lot of people hated the second act. I didn't mind it as much, but I'm very glad that they went back to Barbie Land. Yes. Which I didn't think they'd do. And that was actually going to be a question for you as well was when they left, did you think, "Oh, this is the movie now, we're in the real world?" And were you a bit worried about it? Cuz I kind of I was enjoying it, but I was like thinking, "Damn, I really hope we everything in Barbie Land was so funny and so great and so well put together." That like I was feeling anxiety at the sense you that we're not going to go back, back there. That could, we're not yeah. going to go back there. Yeah. No, I, I always felt like that because Ken was sort of brought along, and Ken's going to go back because he can't fucking exist in this real world because it's too much for him anyway. <laughs> Just <laughs> him and his horses. Oh mate, hang it out in Century City, man. <laughs> That's so funny. What is the Just... what is the Australian equivalent of Century City? Do you think? Um. Uh... Is it? Uh, I was, I was going to say just because it's where we always hung out, but um, Reading Cinemas in Auburn. Do you remember <laughs> where we were there? Bankstown Centro. <laughs> Maybe like Pitt Street or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so just to just to wrap up then, because I know you got to go. Um, what was like? Did you think this was going to be my opening question? But we went kind of so many different ways. Did you think this was going to be this this kind of movie? Like, you know the person that Greta Gerwig is and Margot Robbie wouldn't kind of make a typical kind of I'm a Barbie girl movie. But like, did you think it would go so hard on the meta and on the kind of feminist angle? Oh, I knew it was going to be left of center. And it was, I knew it was going to be left of center and throwing stuff at it. Um, and it was, obviously, if you're going to talk about Barbie, you have to talk about gender. But what I was so pleased with was the complete vision that Greta brought to the screen. First name basis, of course. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, best friend. And we've got Greta on the phone right now. Where Oppenheimer is so ambitious and as we said about like the, the talking action movie where I think Barbie is better. I think Barbie wins Barbenheimer. I think Barbie's better too, yeah. Oppenheimer only, is a phenomenal movie, but I agree with you. Like I a, think Barbie is better. Is they're both more rewatchable. They're both astonishing achievements, but I think Greta Gerwig wins because of that writing, the directing, the commercial success that's going to come with it for her and Margot Robbie. I think it's a phenomenal film that it's also bridged, it's straddled a cultural zeitgeist, so to speak, where it is men and women going to this. Um, And you are ostracized like the only people who are being ostracized are people who want to be ostracized by this so fuck them anyway and I think fuck that, them anyway. that, that picks up into the America Ferrari uh, monologue or speech that comes into the, the third act of the film which is, I thought was fantastic yeah. I, ha- I ha- had a discussion with students at school during the week where they thought oh that, that monologue went too hard and it's almost like 
I thought it was a perfect way because there was times during the Est- film establish that you work at an all boys school. Yes, sorry, a very wealthy all boys school. Let's not that get we will not name. Let's we not will not name. Details, but just just the use. context, just sure. the context for why they were like, oh, that woman talked too long. Well, well that they didn't <laughs> like hearing those things. Yeah, and did you explain like sometimes you got to hear these things? Yeah, and. What I try to then sort of talk about, and I'm not sure if this is a deliberate thing from the film or if this is my interpretation, where if you're as a guy during that film where you're almost like, I don't know if I should feel like a little bit offended in how this idea of masculinity is depicted, um, then think about how women must feel in a male-dominated culture. And how, like nine out of ten movies, and this is the one, the one out of ten for them where you feel a little uncomfortable. Maybe yeah. like just think about why you're feeling uncomfortable, yeah, and, thinking and then about, contextualize it. It made me think walking out of the cinema, and I don't want to go because it's not necessarily a, a film that's a, for men about men sort of thing. It's for everybody, but it, I think there's there's something about masculinity where you can tap into that. And what this is why I fucking love Ken, where. <laughs> figuring out that it's a great sort of way to communicate to a lot of people about these sort of experiences and that not everything is for you and what it might feel like being in a minority at times. And I think, guess what? And we're in the hugely privileged situation of being white 30-something men. We are middle-aged straight white men. We are the... We're never in a minority. (laughs) Never in a minority. And then to feel what it might feel like in a minority in this film, being taking on Ken as an avatar, and then almost like, oh, and you can sort of see why some men go down that rabbit hole, but also then the realisation, it's almost like, this is what it might be like for other people. So maybe we should have some empathy and perspective for what the world is like and maybe think about how we can be better for it and how we can also men can also have body image sort of things like and you know what it's a keen is a great message for everybody you're enough you're okay you're enough that is a perfect place to leave it your little monologue that you just did a day before you're about to give birth to a little boy so i think you've killed it um next time there we you can come to my Mojo Dojo Casa House. <laughs> Casa House. And we can listen to Matchbox 20 and watch The Godfather. Sure. Um, all right. Well, if uh, I'm, I'm assuming we're not going to talk again before uh, the atomic bombs dropped. So uh, good luck when it happens. <laughs> That's a really bad <laughs> metaphor. That's what you said at the I'm, start of the part. I know. I know. And now you, someone said it back to you. Like, I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's... Um, it's going to be good rather than bad. It'll be good. It'll be life-changing, just like uh, Oppenheimer's bomb was, but it'll be a good life change. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. Good to see you. Okay. Talk to you later. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.